Open our Bibles to Colossians 2. There is a hymn we have occasionally sung entitled Counter Blessings. Name them one by one and you will be surprised what the Lord has done. God has showered blessings upon all mankind ever since the beginning. And yet most people don't even think about thanking God for them. Think of the great blessings that all mankind have. Sunshine, medicine, food, even food that tastes good. Music, friends, family. Here in America, we have freedom and many other blessings that God has given us we should be thankful for. But then in addition to that, there are blessings God has given specifically to Christians that are not given to non-Christians until they become Christians. In Colossians 1, Paul's already mentioned some of them. Verse 5, heaven. Deliverance from Satan, verse 13. We're in the kingdom of Christ, verse 13. Redemption, verse 14. Forgiveness of sins, also verse 14. Reconciliation with God, verses 20 and 21. Sinlessness and perfection in heaven, verse 22. And the greatest of them all, verse 27. Christ in us, given for us, to us, and he's in us. And the list could go on and on. Today, in the next three verses, Colossians 2, 11 to 13, we're going to look at one great blessing in different ways. It's that great blessing where God not only forgives a person when he makes him a Christian, he transforms him. There's a change in him, a dramatic change, and he's not quite the same and never will be the same. So we're going to look at this great, wonderful change and the different descriptions of it. First, we start in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. As you know, by studying the Bible, circumcision was an ordinance God had given to the Jews Actually goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews, and that Jewish baby boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that was a symbol of the removal of sin. Just like you do that and take part away, sin is supposed to be taken away from our hearts. And so this was a symbolic ordinance. I might also add that that was the only thing that God allowed So far as body piercing, tattoos, did you know the Bible explicitly forbids all that? That was pagan in origin, and so Christians shouldn't do that. Circumcision was the only mark on a body that God then allowed, or still allowed today. But the Jews put a lot of significance in that. In fact, in one of the Jewish writings, not in the Bible, it says that Abraham is sitting at the gates going into heaven, checking to make sure which Jews can enter if they've been circumcised. But they forget that the Bible says circumcision wasn't just for the body, but for the heart. It says that in the book of Deuteronomy twice, Deuteronomy 10, 16, and 30, 16, also in the book of Jeremiah. 
that God says circumcise your hearts, not just your body, but sadly back then and today, Jews put more emphasis on the physical than the spiritual. And it symbolizes what it says here, the circumcision of the heart. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. But Jews and others, they just look at the physical, not the spiritual. The spiritual is indicated when it says by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, it's Christ that does it. Now, in Jewish synagogues, it's usually the rabbi that does it. That might surprise you, or they might have the the doctor, usually a Jewish doctor, or it's done at the hospital, or the father. Abraham circumcised his children. Later, a converted rabbi named Paul circumcised Timothy, who was already grown up, so it could be done by a variety of people. But this text says circumcision of the heart is done by Christ. Not by a preacher, not by a father, not by a doctor, certainly not by a rabbi, it's by Christ alone. And that tells us that it's something spiritual. Now, this ordinance was only for the Jews in the Old Covenant until the Messiah would come. Messiah has come, that's Jesus. This ordinance, as an ordinance, has been totally abolished. The Jews didn't have to do it once Jesus came. Jews today don't have to do it. They think that they still do because they believe Messiah hasn't come yet. But even Christians don't have to do this. Read the book of Galatians. Chapter 6 it says circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing. What really matters is a new creation of the heart. So it's optional. Most people in America still have their baby boys circumcised mainly out of tradition and there's different views amongst doctors whether it serves some medical purpose some of them say yes and other ones say it's optional it doesn't really do anything I'll leave that to the choice of the parents did you know however that there are already some moves in some very liberal circles to outlaw circumcision because they say that boy doesn't have that choice and that's a permanent th- funny that they don't say that about tattoos that it's a permanent decision So they're trying to outlaw. They're not going to get very far. The Jewish lobby is going to lobby hard and say, even if you make it illegal, we're still going to do it. And so I may not totally agree with them, but I'd say, stand your ground. So this move to outlaw circumcision isn't just a religious or a medical thing. It's something that would eventually go after Christians and other things to limit their freedom. Be that as it may, Circumcision was never the means of salvation. And Jews today think if you're circumcised, or at least the boys are, then you're in. You're a true Jew. You're on your way to heaven. Opens the door to doing good works and making your way to heaven. It was never meant that. And so Paul addressed that in Galatians and especially Romans by saying, uh, you want to talk about being Jew? Let's talk about the greatest Jew, Abraham. Um, do you know the book of Genesis, Bereshith in, in Hebrew? Yes. When was he put right with God? Before or after his circumcision? Well, the Bible very explicitly says he believed God, Genesis 15, he was justified. And that was before he circumcised himself or his sons, as if saying, if you were justified before that, that's not a term or condition of being justified. It never was. And it certainly isn't today. It was a symbolic ritual. It's kind of like 
a wedding. We'll be having a wedding here in a couple of weeks, Jeff and Dina's son. We mistakenly said the daughter in the prayer list, it's actually their son. But what marries the couple together? Is it the ring? No, the ring is a symbol of the two now being united by virtue of their vows and God's blessing. Circumcision was, as it were, the the ring. It wasn't the thing that saved you. Let me show you this very important couple of verses. Turn back to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Paul is writing to Christians, many of which were Jews. Some of them were Gentiles, and this question of circumcision came up. Look what he says at the very end of Romans, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew... who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Then in Galatians 3, he says, whether you've been circumcised or not doesn't matter. What matters is, do you believe in Jesus Christ and have you been justified? And then he goes a step further, echoes what he says in Romans, says, if you have been justified by faith in Christ, you were the true Jew. You were the true Israel. Galatians 16, 6.16, the Israel of God. He even says, you were the true children of Abraham. It's got nothing to do with the physical ceremony, but the ceremony in the heart. And so... The first way that Paul describes this great transformation in our heart is not the outward display in the body, but in the transformation of the heart that it says it's like circumcision where something is taken away. God does something in the heart of a person. He believes he's transformed. He's a new person. He's had spiritual surgery. Secondly, look at the text. That's verse 11, then verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Here he switches from circumcision to the picture of baptism. And like circumcision, baptism is a physical act that has a spiritual significance. There's a somewhat similar similarity between baptism and 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 circumcision, something is taken away. It's like water washes dirt away. But this verse should never be taken to mean that you have to be baptized to be saved. That would be like saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. That's not the purpose of baptism. Certainly wasn't the purpose of circumcision. It's a symbolic ceremony. And it symbolizes, among other things, the washing away of sins, I mean, you put a body in water or put the water on the body, it's like washing your hands or taking a shower. The purpose is to wash something away. Baptism symbolizes the washing away of our sins. But it also symbolizes, as this verse says, the idea of you've been buried and now you're raised again. And that's what he's going to develop in the next verse or two. It's symbolic of that transformation. Now, some people connect verses 11 and 12 and say, well, there was circumcision in the old. Baptism takes its place. Circumcision was for babies. Therefore, baptism is for babies. Sounds very logical. They forget two or three very important, obvious facts. Number one, circumcision was only for boys, not for girls. 
What we, do we baptize girls and women? Yes, we do. But also in the context of all of the New Testament, all the commands, all the examples are for believers and not a single command or example for infants. Unlike circumcision, where it's repeatedly said, this is for the infant boys. Now, I know that there are many very godly Christians that will baptize their babies, and I don't make a big fuss with them about it, as long as they are not saying, this is making that baby a Christian. Now, that's what the Roman Catholic Church says, and many others say they say that transforms that baby when you put the water on it. No, it does not any more than circumcision does. It's a symbolic ceremony. And so for our godly paedo-baptist brethren, they say, no, it does not save the baby. It's just a ceremony of dedication, and now he's part of the family covenant, and so forth. But the point is, circumcision and baptism are physical things with a symbolic significance, and that is the main thing, not the outward display. It is to symbolize death to the old, and now there's newness of life. Romans 6 addresses this. It says that it's symbolic of burial and resurrection. And you baptize someone into the water, it's like putting him in the grave, and he comes out of the water. Like it says, Jesus came out from the water of Jordan. And that's symbolic that we are now spiritually raised from death. I heard a Baptist preacher say this, and I kind of nodded, yes, there's a point there. He said, you don't bury someone with a handful of dirt. You totally immerse them under the dirt. And I said, well, he makes a point there for a total immersion. And uh, another thing is when you bury someone, it's not the person burying himself. He is buried by someone else. The Bible does not teach self-baptism. I know someone who actually, after he was converted, he baptized himself. And then he later came to me and says, was that valid? And I said, what does it symbolize when you baptize yourself? That's symbolizing that you saved yourself. And he says, oh, I get the point. I said, let's do the baptism in a more symbolic way. The point is, physical baptism symbolizes spiritual baptism. Therefore, what is the spiritual baptism that is symbolized by water baptism? What is the baptismal element, as it were? It's not water. There are those that say you are not saved until you've been baptized in water. I tell you on the authority of the word of God, that is wrong and dangerous. Because that idea called baptismal regeneration says everybody that's baptized, either as an infant, teenager, or whatever, is automatically saved. That is not what the Bible says. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by water baptism. But the Bible does talk about a spiritual baptism whereby our sins are washed away. What then is the element? What is the liquid? Because baptism has to do with putting something into a liquid. It's not water. It's blood. 1 John chapter 1, the blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. So you may have been baptized once, ten times, by yourself, by a preacher, by a priest. If you have not been baptized in the blood of Christ, you have not been truly baptized with the washing away of your sins. That is the true spiritual baptism, and it's one that only Christ does. No preacher, priest, or anybody else can do that. 
Look at the text. It says, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. God does this, just like he was the one that raised Jesus from the dead. He's the one that does the spiritual baptism of us. We don't do it ourselves, our parents, our preacher. It's Christ that does it. What is the responsibility of the sinner? Look at the text. Faith. We are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul describes this second way of discussing this transformation in the heart when we become a Christian, this opens the door then for him to get to the main uh, metaphor of the change in our life. He has already said it's like uh, being buried, and now he says spiritual salvation is like when you are raised from the dead. Look at the text. It says you were dead in your trespasses, and uncircumcision of your flesh, talking about your spiritual heart, your flesh, your sinful nature. Bible repeatedly says that we're born dead in our sins. We spend our whole life in a living death of trespasses. Trespasses means like, uh, you've seen signs, no trespassing, don't go there. Trespass is another word for sin. There's transgression, unrighteousness, disobedience, and trespasses. But the Bible says we were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Turn back to the book of Ephesians that Thomas read earlier, chapter 2. Ephesians and Colossians overlap quite a bit and use a lot of the same words and metaphors. So we will look at this in Ephesians. It sheds light on Colossians. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, the spirit is the devil, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But you look at this and it's ironic. He says you were dead, verse 1, but you were also walking. How does a dead man walk? He walks in sin. He's the living dead. We're born spiritually, physically alive, but spiritually dead. It's like a stillborn baby. A dead body doesn't respond to a stimulus. You can poke it, you can talk to it. You can offer it good food. Dead body doesn't respond. A spiritually dead soul does not respond to the things of God. He doesn't see the things of God. He doesn't hear. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't walk in righteousness. He walks in sin. And that's how the Bible repeatedly describes the lost sinner. Book of Job combines several verses and says that there's a body that's in the grave and it's decomposing and being eaten by maggots. And that's a picture of the lost sinner. He's dead and he's rotting in his spiritual death. He's unable to do anything spiritually good. Now let me give you an illustration of this. As you know, I was born and raised in New Orleans and in certain parts of New Orleans and in outlying places out in the swamps of southern Louisiana, there's still 
people that believe in the old-fashioned religion called voodoo. Where did voodoo come from? West Africa, tribal religions, and it was brought over to southern Louisiana and Florida and Haiti. Haiti is still very popular. And in parts of Florida, it's called Macumba, but in Louisiana, it's usually called voodoo, sometimes Macumba, sometimes Grigri. But in this evil religion, which is filled with evil superstition, they have a legend of the living dead. And they do a ceremony at a certain grave, and they say that the person comes out of the grave, and he's the living dead, called a zombie. The zombie Macumba Grigri. Very dangerous. And of course we would say, that's a lot of superstitious. People are dead and waiting their resurrection. But, in a way, they've grasped the truth and misused it. The Bible says, look at the text again. We were dead in our sins and we are dead men walking in sin. An unbeliever is like a spiritual zombie. Spiritually, the living dead. Think about that. And the vast majority of people in America and in Springfield, Illinois, are spiritual zombies. People you work with, people in your family, your neighborhood. Has it ever occurred to you? They're physically alive, but spiritually, they're dead. And you try to communicate spiritually to them. It's like talking another language. It's like talking to a corpse. Jonathan Edwards painted a very vivid picture of this. Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, he says, you are like white-watered sepulchers, beautiful on the outside, but inside you are filled with dead men's bones. And Edwards said this, he said, the bodies of unbelievers are simply the sepulchers of their dead souls. What a picture. And then he went even step further. He said, to his own church, he said, now look around you, and I'd say that to you, look at all the people here, we've got what, about 75 people here this morning? Let's assume everybody here was lost except you. Now you look around, you say, well, there's men, women, some little children, older people, and uh, some have big families and all, but imagine if you were sitting here, as Edward said, and you were the only person who was spiritually alive. He said, now let me give you a graphic picture of the spiritual reality. You look at all these other people sitting there, imagine if they were all physically dead. As if they had gone to the graveyard, dug them up and put their body in the church pews and they're rotting. Their eyes and they're bleeding and decomposing. And he says that would be a... And he was very bold. He says that's a graphic picture of the average church where most of the people are dead sinners. That would be an awful picture to be sitting in a room full of decomposing dead bodies. But brethren, we're in a world of that. Paul says here, he says, in which you walk, it's like a parade of zombies down the street with their arms up. They're dead and scaring people. This has been an interesting theme that has cropped up, not just in preachers like Jonathan Edwards and Kurt Daniel, but in various novels and movies. About 200 years ago, a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, the wife of Percy Shelley, the famous poet, wrote an interesting novel 
about a scientist that thought he could bring back life from the dead. And so he had grave robbers bring him a body, connected electrodes, and had lightning strike it. And he says, it's alive, it's alive. And the doctor's name was Dr. Frankenstein. And the monster was the living dead. And then years later in the century, Bram Stoker wrote a novel about a count in Transylvania that slept during the daytime, was alive at night, but he had already died. And he was the living dead named Count Dracula. And this goes on and on. You've seen movies, TV shows, there are novels about the living dead. Another word for that is a monster. And of course, sometimes they say the monster is sort of half human and half animal, like the wolf man or other such things. In my book, I have a chapter on the depth of depravity, and I quote John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and others to say, and they say, spiritually, the unbeliever is a monster. Now think about it. We are not what we were created to be. If we were to somehow put Adam before he fell into a time machine and bring him up here, or to bring someone down from heaven and set him here, you'd notice a dramatic difference between those that have no sin, back then, Adam, or those that now have no sin, they're in a perfect state, and compared to the average non-Christian today, it, you'd look at the non-Christian as God sees him and says, that's a monster, that's not what he is created to be. He's not doing the things he should do, he doesn't have the capabilities to do that. He is like a spiritual monster. The zombie Macumba Grigory. But notice what Paul says here, both in Ephesians and Colossians. He says, this is not only the state of every non-Christian out there. He says, that's what all of you Christians once were. We were all one day children of wrath. He says, like the rest of mankind. So this idea of the zombie, the monster... That's what each person here, here once was. And if you are a Christian, you are no longer that. God transformed you from that zombie monster into a Christian. You once were that. And brethren, never forget that. The Bible says never forget the rock from which you were hewn. You once were that. And if you are a non-Christian today, that is what you still are. You need to be transformed. And only Jesus Christ can do that. Now what happens to that non-Christian that is physically alive, but spiritually dead? What happens if he continues to walk in this evil parade led by the devil on a death march to hell? What if a person stays like that and dies like that? What happens? He stays in a state of permanent spiritual death into the afterlife. His body goes into the grave, whether it's cremated, buried, lost at sea, whatever. It'll eventually disintegrate temporarily. But the Bible says that will be raised up again, not in a perfect body like Christians get, but a very imperfect, sin-filled body. And here's where the nightmare of reality strikes us like a wet towel in the face. He is now spiritually dead, raised up in a living dead body, that will be a real monster. And in that condition, he will suffer eternally in the flames of hell fire. What a stark reality. 
But against that dark, evil background, God sets forth the diamond of salvation and says, that's what you once were, look at what you are now. And that should move you to thank the Lord Jesus Christ, that as it were, he called you out of the grave of your sins and transformed you into his child. Look at the text. He is made alive together with him. The Bible uses various other pictures to describe this transformation in our heart and our experience. One of them is regeneration. We're born again. And if you're a Christian, you know that's a radical transformation. It may have happened when you were very young and you don't remember it, or maybe it happened as an adult, but Jesus said you must be born again. It's a radical transformation, every bit as radical as the birth of a baby. Now, we're born physically with a body, but we need to be born again spiritually. And it's not done by water or circumcision or anything like that. It's a spiritual transformation. In fact, the book of Ezekiel says it's like a heart transplant where the old dead heart is taken out and a new heart is put in that's pumping. Pumping what? Pumping life. Now, this regeneration is not reincarnation. And it doesn't make us little gods. Secondly, the Bible describes it as spiritual recreation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. It's the picture like going back to Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He created. He alone did it. We do not recreate ourselves. We do not save ourselves. We can't give ourselves a heart transplant. We can't give ourselves spiritual birth any more than we did physical birth. It's done by Christ. By the way, here's an interesting analogy. Where did the world come from? Well, you know what's being taught in the public schools? Evolution. Chance, And we evolved out of nothing into something, the Big Bang, and then into slime, and then into lower animal, and we've evolved out of that. That's dead wrong. But some people almost think something like that happens spiritually when you become a Christian. What do I mean? They say, well, it's not this radical transformation of being born again. It's just something that evolves. When you go to church and you say, I'm going to get a little bit more religious and I'm going to read my Bible, I'm just going to sort of gradually become righteous and evolve to be a Christian. doesn't happen like that. We're recreated, not self-created or self-evolved. But look at the text again. Paul describes this transformation as spiritual resurrection. He is made alive. We've been transformed from the spiritual zombies to living Christians. 1 John 3.14 says, We have passed from death unto life. If you're a Christian, you're no longer a monster in God's sight. You're no longer a spiritual zombie. You're no longer in the devil's parade. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this, this experience do? It reverses the effects of sin and spiritual death in our soul. You see... We're born in sin. We have no memory of what it was like to be without sin. Adam and Eve did, because they were the only two people that were created without sin. So for the rest of his life, they could always remember, Honey, do you remember what it was like in the garden before we sinned? Yes, it was wonderful. None of us have that memory, because none of us were ever spiritually alive until he made us alive. So when Adam and Eve sinned, 
this principle of sin killed their spirit and stayed in them and led them to the grave. Sin is in our body as well as in our souls. But Christ has done something in us to counteract that. He has put a new principle of life within us. And that's what he did when he raised us from the dead. So the question then is, what is that spiritual principle that's put into us like life? It's not a principle. It's a person. The Lord Jesus Christ breathes the Holy Spirit into us. We find an interesting picture of this. Rather graphic, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel had the vision. He says, Son of man, what do you see? And Ezekiel says, Well, I see this big valley filled with dried bones and skulls out there that is like an army. It all died, and the, the vultures and the hyenas had picked the bodies, and now the sun has bleached all the bones white, and they're all dead, and uh, they're dead. And Ezekiel, and God says, well, can they come to life? Uh, Lord, no, they're dead. So he says, I'll show you something. Call for the wind, O Ezekiel. And here comes the wind blowing through the valley. The bones begin to rattle and they connect each other and they stand up, but they're not alive yet until the Spirit breathes life into them and now flesh covers them and now they're all walking, they're wide awake. That's a picture of what happens in spiritual resurrection. Until a person becomes a Christian, he's just a valley of dead, bleached bones. He's rotted, as it were, spiritually, but God's Spirit does this. Also, Ezekiel says it's a heart transplant. He says, I'll take that heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh pumping life. So it changes this dramatically. Yes, in some respects, you are still you. still have the same fingerprints after you're Spiritually raised, same DNA code, same memory, same name, same memories. These things have changed. But when you have this transforming experience, you look in the mirror and say, something about me has changed. What has changed? You think differently. You feel things differently. You have holy desires. Beforehand, you weren't interested in God or holiness. Now, you love God, you love holiness, and you hate sin. You say, what happened to me? You were born again, you were spiritually recreated and resurrected. And yet there's still something of the old you. There's still sin in your body, the Bible says. That's why we still occasionally have bad thoughts and actions. It's comparable to one of the wonderful miracles Jesus did. He not only healed the blind, the deaf, the people that couldn't walk, On several occasions, he raised people from the dead, and that was meant to be a living symbol of spiritual resurrection. The most well-known is Lazarus, John chapter 11. He'd been in the grave four days, and the Pharisees said, don't open that up, he's already stinking, he's rotting. Jesus said, open the, take this stone away, and he called Lazarus, come forth, and he came forth immediately. What gives power to the dead soul is the word of God spoken by the Holy Spirit. And it's like he's like lightning strikes in his heart and gives him life. But notice what Jesus did. He raised him from the dead and Lazarus comes out still wrapped up in the mummy grave clothes. Can you kind of picture him trying to hobble? He couldn't even see. When God raises a dead sinner into life, he still has the grave clothes. You still have the grave clothes. That's why you still sin. You still have sin in you. But Jesus said, take the grave clothes off and bring them his good suit of clothes. 
When we get to heaven, all the grave clothes will be gone away. So Lazarus was alive, still wrapped up with his grave clothes. That's why we still sin. But it's interesting. Have you ever noticed, when you became a Christian, there were some sinful tendencies that were completely taken out of you. Maybe you used to love to get drunk or commit immorality, and then from the very moment you were saved, you weren't even tempted by those things. Why? Because God had taken that part of the grave clothes off of you. But then there are some things you still sin. So be patient with other people that may have different grave clothes as you. The Bible says here it's done by Christ through the Holy Spirit, not by ourselves, not by water baptism, not by circumcision. What then is the means or the element whereby God recreates a person? Go back to Genesis 1. God simply spoke and it was created. Let it be this, let it be light, let it and so forth. God sends the word of his power through the word of God. This is the means whereby God recreates a person, gives them new life, gives them the new birth. It's the word of God. We're told this several times. 1 Peter 1.23, James 1.18. Therefore, we should share the word of God with people. Lastly, the text says he raised us up to get together with him. Our spiritual resurrection is linked with his physical resurrection. In a few weeks, we celebrate Easter. Interesting. Think about how much divine power it took to raise Jesus from the dead. Now, medical people, anatomists, doctors, scientists try to bring back life. They can resuscitate life. They cannot bring back a dead body. They might resuscitate it when it's just barely hanging on, couldn't breathe, got out the jumper cables, hit it to the heart, but they cannot raise someone from the dead. Why? Death has a certain power that no man, no woman, no doctor has power over. That says in the book of Ecclesiastes, no man has power over death when it's his day. So when we die, it takes a certain power of God to raise a body from the dead that even Dr. Frankenstein, with all of his electrodes, could not do. Only God can raise from the dead. But the death of Jesus required a superabundant amount of that divine energy. Why? Because he died in a special way. He died, our sins were laid upon him. He died in such a way as to suffer far more than we could to appease the wrath of God. So when Jesus died, he died a special death. Therefore, I tell you, it took a special, infinite power of God to shoot life into his dead body, and it raised him from the dead. It was a super double miracle, as it were. Now, Ephesians 1.19 says, that is the power, the divine energy of God, the very lightning of God that struck your heart and gave you spiritual life, and nothing else could have ever done that. What a great privilege. So our spiritual resurrection is linked with his and also our future physical resurrection is linked to him like like the caboose on a train. It's pulled by him. If Jesus didn't rise, we couldn't rise either spiritually or physically. And it's done because of his wonderful resurrection. And this Spiritual resurrection happens only once. There are preparatory stages to it, like conviction of sin and like enlightening. 
enlightening. But when it happens, it happens in the twinkling of an eye. And it's also, praise God, irreversible. If you are now spiritually alive, you'll never be spiritually dead again. It's not repeatable. It doesn't have to be repeated. And it's the same in every believer. If you've been spiritually recreated and resurrected, that's the same experience your fellow brothers and sisters here have experienced. And one more thing. You either have it or you don't have it. There's no in-between. You've either been born again or you're still not born again. You've either been spiritually resurrected or you're still dead in your trespasses, in your sins. So what's the answer? One of the Puritans from Scotland named Henry Scougal wrote a delightful little book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And he said baptism in the Church of England was not good enough. Or in the Church of Scotland, he says, it has to be the life of God put into the soul of man that recreates and gives him new birth, gives him new life. Tremendous little book. And then in the next generation, a Church of England pastor that had been to Oxford came across that little book and God used that book to direct him to what the scriptures said and he was born again. He had the life of God in his soul. He was spiritually resurrected and the preacher became well known, Mr. George Whitfield. And his favorite sermon he preached hundreds of times was, you must be born again. You must have this spiritual experience in your heart to be recreated, to be born again. To be spiritually raised up again. Not only to prepare you for heaven, but to enjoy the blessings of God here. I ask you in God's name, do you have that? Have you been spiritually raised up? Have you been born again? Have you been spiritually recreated? Or are you still a spiritual zombie? One last lesson for Christians. And we find this in the book of Romans. You are no longer that monster spiritual zombie that you once were. Oh, maybe you remember that from time to time and it causes you grief. It should. You are no longer what you once were. You are a different person in Jesus Christ. You have new desires, new thoughts, a new lifestyle. Live in that lifestyle. Live as the new man and don't go back to the graveyard of your old lifestyle. You are a new man, a new woman in Christ. You've all heard of Augustine. He was converted at age 30. He was raised by a very godly mother, but when he became a young adult, he got away from all Christian teaching. He was not saved. He joined the various cults. He, got, he studied philosophy, very immoral sexually. And then he was dramatically converted when he heard some children sing a little song, take up and read. He went and found a Bible, opened it up to the book of Romans, which says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the... Sins of the flesh. And he believed he was totally transformed. He was not the same thing. But a few weeks later, don't know if you've ever heard this story, he met a woman that was once his paramour, his, that committed sexual immorality with him. And she said, Augustine, you remember me? Yes, to my shame. Augustine, let's go and do what we used to do. No, 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 I don't want to. And she said, but I'm still the same. And he said this, he says, but I am not the same Augustine. And he went his way and she went her way. 
You are not the same person you were before Jesus Christ changed you. Walk in that new life. Don't go back to the old life. And pray for your lost friends that are still walking in trespasses and sins on their way to hell. Pray for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you did this wonderful miracle in our lives. You circumcised our hearts. You baptized our hearts in the blood of Jesus. You gave us the new birth in our spirit. You created us afresh. And you raised us from the spiritual death that we had been in all our lives. Thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.